When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just for, um, I guess, full disclosure, uh, you know, conflict of interest, we, we do run game nights uh, together. We have different game nights. We play different role-playing games. So we, we know each other outside of, you know, psychotherapy and then podcast world. So we might... Um, the audience might pick up on a little bit of a chummy familiarity um, that they're not necessarily used to in a perfectly professional environment, but we can simulate the professionalism. But what you two guys were talking about was that you want to talk about or kind of develop some sort of like not continuing education, but some sort of paraphernalia that would be useful in a classroom classroom to speak to I guess, university or college students about how to interface with diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, and their worries about how that might impact their grades or their class standing, and above and beyond, their, their social status. Because we know for one reason or another, maybe we can both talk about this, or all three of us talk about the psychodynamics of this training and how that affects one's status or how it's bound up and how one is perceived uh, and why that is and what that is about and then how to navigate that psychologically and socially and then also professionally in order to get ahead, stay ahead and not get so-called canceled. All right. It works for me. I'm not sure about the professionality of it all. Even the last time you said that you got end up marrying the interviewing, but... I'm, he I'm is, just kidding. But he is cute, David. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I totally, you know, I support his message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, yeah, that, that, that's that's great. Um, I honestly doing this because I didn't know what else to do because, you know, the students said, you know, what can you do? Can you write me a letter, you know, to fight these professors? Can you uh, try to demolish your argument? They say, oh, hold on a second. Let me just see what you have to say. Um, and then let's see if we can have a conversation about that. But it was hard for me to have a conversation, given that I don't know the names of the other professors. And so I think this would be a good way for us to share thoughts about the fact that at this point, even students are negatively affected by the way DI is being taught at university and, or college level. And how are they being affected? Just for like an alien that beams in, like what's going on over here? Like. Well, a lot of these classes have to do either with sociology. Some of those classes are intro to college studies. So it's the very first time that I have the opportunity to have an open discussion. And yet there is no discussion because they already feel so intimidated that they can really speak about the topic that it has to be, you know, talking about. So that's how, and you know, whether their grade will be affected or not, every student claimed that their grade will be affected, but the semester is not over yet. So I don't have any evidence to prove that. Um, but if they feel they're being shut down already at the level of the conversation in class, uh, I think there's enough evidence to believe that they're at least very concerned about it. And I'm very careful not to be, I don't know, too much of a snowflake when a student says, yo, I feel, you know, that I cannot speak up, but there seems to be a pattern there, a pattern that I really didn't see before, you know, like five years ago was completely unknown to me. 
What are your what's your thoughts, uh, Aaron, so far? Well, I, I, what what David is uh, uh, talking about certainly sounds uh, familiar. Uh, you know, I, I, students are hit um, so hard uh, right from the start on entering uh, programs that have been ideologically uh, captured that they hear very, very powerful messages initially that they feel that they are not in a position to speak back against. And if you know, if you if you were to boil the messages uh, down to their common denominator, it goes something like this. Either you believe um, what we tell you to believe, or you must uh, be known as a uh, wounder of the vulnerable, that there there is no way to be a benevolent person in approaching issues of uh, uh, pertaining to uh, minorities in society other than the very specific pathway that critical social justice offers. Mm -hmm. And so that's a that's a powerful message, especially for young idealistic people who do who are very interested in uh, social issues, but but they feel they're receiving messages that don't quite gel with their morality. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, because w when you look at uh, Robin D'Angelo's work, for example, uh, and Ibram X. Kendi and many, many others, uh, they do rely on sort of a crude stereotyping. And so to, to even the most benevolent-minded student who wants very much to be helpful around these issues, uh, they experience some difficulty in uh, in in accepting broad truths about wide groups of people and understand that that's not quite right, but they feel feel compelled to toe the line, and that just doesn't sit well with with uh, with, with many. It, it, there is a kind of a conflict there i i can assume for i guess a certain kind of intelligent kind of student to you know be really interested in things be really open and gobbling up information mm -hmm. and, and critically thinking and turning things over and then feeling proud about the ability to inter engage with nuance about issues and then you and then you're thrown into something and it looks like like david from what you're saying like this is an intro thing so even to get into the gate of higher yes. education, you have to like, all of a sudden you have to say, okay, well, these things are off limits and I can't think about these things in more than one way. I have to think about, or it's implied that I might have to, or if I don't, I might be in trouble, you know? So, so like this really intelligent person is like now being offered or, you know, whether compelled or, you know, softly compelled to limit That's their curiosity. Point. Yeah. So, I mean, it's often the case that the most intelligent person in the room is the one that has the highest level of self-doubt. Um, and uh, the other thing is there is no real clear message that is spelled out in the way these topics are taught. So you don't even know which mm -hmm. of the statements you could possibly say could be perceived mm -hmm. as wrong, fallacious, or even worse, racist. 
And I noticed that especially when there are certain things that, I mean, everyone knows about this, of course, previously would be considered cognitive distortions or logical fallacies. For instance, if a person were to say A, B, C in a statement, but at the same time, however, D, E, F, that is in itself considered to be, well, you think you're a nice person, but deep down within, you are a horrible person. Are you trying to mask things? For instance, statements such as, well, I I love all people, I respect all people, but mm. the current state of affairs, the current rates of crimes or whatever you want to say, concerns me. Then in itself, and, and this is really the description of the student and things I witnessed myself, is in itself perceived as problematic. And that's precisely why you need to make you know, there's no even way to atone for this sense. Mm-hmm. That's the other problem. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a biggest issue already at the beginning of one's academic career. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, and I, I may be putting the cart in front of the horse in our discussion there, but something that's really Dr. Tomasi there is talking about that really stands out to me is one of the, one of the rhetorical strategies that, critical social justice types use is vagueness and Mm -hmm. what what vagueness allows um someone who's invested in indoctrinating to do is to um make differing interpretations as it is as it grants them power and influence to do so so they're always able to maintain um the upper hand in interactions because they can they can rely on not being specific in order to constantly put uh, those who disagree with them in a one down position, often with very emotive yeah. uh, 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 terms like transphobic and racist, very powerful uh, terms so that the the vagueness um, that David is talking about, I think, is is a very intentional part of this phenomenon. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, in the everyday, and I guess we're talking to a generation that grew up online more or less. And so Mm -hmm. is very aware of the vicissitudes of social media, but you get into places in your social media life where you're arguing with somebody that's kind of doing these tricks on you, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. doing vagueness, uh, making moral commandments of you, demanding certain things or demanding that you see things their way. And you're like, well, there's more than one way to see it. And that in mm-hmm. and of itself is is uh, taken as an act of betrayal or a slight in some way. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, something like that. So we, we yeah. can see these uh, discussions spiraling out of control on social media and we can remove ourselves yeah. from them or find people that can you know help us digest them by ridiculing them or having actual conversations about these topics. But so one way of dealing with being in that situation is to remove yourself from the situation. One way of dealing with the person who's manipulating that ways to gain distance either through ridicule or just physical space or just, you know, just like mind space. But in the context of a classroom, in the context of an institution that you are engaged in, like this kind of like you're paying a lot of money and you're hoping to get ahead of your career, like you can't necessarily separate yourself from that. So that option isn't necessarily available to you. So what are the other strategies of 
you know, either weathering this or dealing with this in that kind of power dynamic? One thing that I always advise students to do and people in general, myself included, is to target the argument, the topic, the statement, rather than utilizing group ideology, really. Uh, even if this it's not easy to do, because, for instance, it would be easy to dismiss all this claim as, I don't know, postmodernist nonsense or woke nonsense. But then you, you might make the same mistake. You put this big label, and if someone comes from the opposite end, um, and it really does not matter whether it's on the right wing or left wing, this type of logical fallacies found throughout uh, human experience, then you, f you you fail in two different ways. One, that you you will not be able to make a dent in the way the other person believes because they will just you know be insensitive to what you have to say because you already identify yourself as the opponent. And two, you're not really solving the problem because you're actually as vague as the thing you want to analyze. So if someone were to say, for instance, all, I don't know, what would be a, a broad statement, uh, all men, all human beings are bad, okay? you need to target that statement and not whatever school of thought led to the statement. Although this might not be necessarily wrong, you could trace back the philosophy, the mentality, the attitude, and even the authors that led to the current state of affairs but this is very similar to targeting, I don't know, political or religious thing. A person might do the wrong thing because they misinterpret the textbook from which they get their knowledge, or the textbook itself is fallacious and the person is applying that to a very high degree of precision. And so you should blame the textbook. So you find a variety of situations. Okay. So to try to summarize, and please refine this summary, when engaged with an emotive, ideological, or manipulative conversation or discourse, set aside, focus on the content that can lead out of that rather than focusing on the content that will leave, lead further into the emotional, ideological, or manipulative content. Isolate the statements, see if there's a way, a path forward to understand, and then to discuss, and I guess just kind of ignore or set aside for later the manipulative content, the, you know, like the implications that you're a bad person or these moral claims. Yeah, precisely. Well, you had to be like a child, I would say, but uh, you, yeah. you go ahead, Dr. Kingsbutter. Oh, well, I, I was just going to say, I, I, I think also, though, the, like the first um, thing that, that people might have to do is to is to recognize that they are, in fact, in a situation with a person who is attempting to indoctrinate or manipulate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because I think that people, um, as a rule, give um, undue credit uh, to ideological manipulators where mm -hmm. credit is, in fact, not due, even though that person might have a lot of status. So. Uh, you might be a student in a class with someone who has a PhD and who's very charismatic, and your your first instinct might be to say, "Well, this person understands something that I don't, and so I need mm -hmm. to, I need to, uh, you know, it, it sends you into this into this sort of spiral of questioning yourself, and uh, you know, that's question having intellectual humility is not a bad thing, but becoming convinced that this person understands something that you don't mm 
um, if you don't have some mechanism to evaluate that assumption, then you might find yourself in trouble. So I, I think two things. One, you have to take seriously the possibility and ask yourself the question, am I in a situation where I'm dealing with someone who is an ideological predator or an ideological manipulator? And if so, then I think you can begin to evaluate uh, the material. And there, there are a few things that I really like when I'm thinking through this. One, uh, in reading Thomas Sowell, he made he makes some excellent um, arguments about um, political decisions and policy initiatives and so forth, which is to say that he uh, has identified that any course of action that one might take to address a particular problem is a trade-off that in, in making that particular decision, you might gain something that you want, but you probably also have to give up something that you may also want. So when 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 someone is at the front of a classroom and they're, I don't know, maybe they're saying, um, maybe you know, maybe maybe this person is teaching Robin D'Angelo and they say, and the professor is saying, if you notice yourself to reacting to Robin D'Angelo, that's just a sign of either your white fragility, or if it's a person of color who's reacting, maybe their internalized whiteness or whatever. If if a person is being asked to swallow that, then they might say, "Well, let's take let's take seriously for a moment the possibility that the professor is right in initiating this. Let's let's think for a moment about what would be the good." you know, what would be the good thing if I were to accept this premise as true? Um, and you might say, well, I would be more aware perhaps of uh, of that I'm I'm being defensive rather than having intellectual humility. And that might interfere with my ability uh, to be a better citizen of my community. The other side of that trade-off is maybe that, that exact same argument is so flawed that it could be used um, if we accept it in this particular scenario. Maybe that same circular argument could be used in a different scenario uh, to actually uh, work against someone who doesn't have uh, political power. And maybe now that we have uh, now that we have said that social ills are associated with people of a particular race, maybe now that conversation would be used in a way that we never intended. So the, yeah. the, what, what it's coming down to for me is, is the person in the front of the classroom exploring thoroughly and in good faith those that kind of nuance and complexity, or are they gratifying their own needs? Uh, to, to push an ideology. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, price line. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, I have to agree. Um, uh, another interesting thing that I noticed, which speaks to what Dr. Kinsvara just explained, is that Overall, I noticed that many of my colleagues are very eager to have open conversations to the point that they don't hesitate too much if they don't know an answer to a specific question. And they, they might say, yeah, that's a good question. Let, let's talk about it. Except when the topic is DEI, in which case they already have all the answers and mm-hmm. any type of attempt to not necessarily go against their statement, but just question it is in itself, as you just pointed out, indicative of the fact there's something wrong about the person asking that question, which is quite interesting. Yeah. In, in a free society, you should you should not have any specific limits to the topic. And I would say beyond decency, which is also interesting because uh, w- what do we mean by beyond decency? Well, being a nice person in a classroom, and I, and I can tell that none of my students that experienced this were in any way, shape, or form, you know, misbehaving in class or lacking respect, they generally had an interest in understanding why their instructor was presenting the situation in such a way that they could not even ask a question because the way they framed the question was considered to be in itself bad. Yeah. Well, there is is something I I would like to say about that specifically, Dr. Tomasi, and and that that is, I have been thinking lately, uh, and and to your point about, you know, the the people that that you find yourself around, the academics are very open-minded, except around anything having to do with DEI. And I've been I've been thinking about this for a little while, and I've been thinking about the difference between critical thinking and critical believing. And I I, I think what Dr. Tomasi is is talking about when you know I, I know David is is teaching a class on the psychology of consciousness right now because I've been following along. I, th- I think it's very interesting and it's open and online, and you know that he raises in that course uh, a number of ideas and questions that that one could ask questions about, advance hypotheses, and then test those hypotheses. And uh, it's very much based, in other words, on critical thinking, which is designed to reduce bias and uh, get us closer to an objective truth or a truth that would stand up to questioning very well. I think uh, around the DEI, and I think this is ubiquitous around DEI, uh, the goal is not to advance hypotheses or to subject uh, premises uh, to uh, uh, interrogation. It is to accept the premises uh, uncritically 
and which which makes it a process not of critical thinking but of critical believing and the difference is is that critical thinking uh which which comes out of western philosophy and and is in fact the basis of uh psychotherapy uh it, it all goes back hmm. to uh, uh, the, the ideas that came out of the the uh, the birth of modern Western society in terms of how do we live a good life, and uh, that and critical thinking, uh, which if you translate that to uh, therapy terms, uh, might most readily translate to cognitive behavioral therapy. It's designed to help you identify your biases so that you live well according to a reasonable. Uh, approximation of what reality actually is. And uh, critical believing, on the other hand, and as opposed to exercising the mind to determine uh, what is the most, you know, what most likely in this particular situation represents a reasonable approximation to reality, you almost have to kind of do the opposite so that you bend or distort, uh, to use Dr. Tomasi's uh, earlier statements, you distort reality so that it fits within uh, the parameters of the preconceived belief. So it, it, as opposed to exercising your mind to discover your reality, you have to exercise your mind in order to uh, fit within the parameters of acceptable belief, which almost always uh, 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 leads one down a path of a circumscribed way of living and feeling and relating. It's it's like in psychological terms, it's a very very bad idea. But is it is, is it? I'm sorry, continue. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, when it comes to DEI, uh, we should never mistake that for critical thinking because various curriculum are are beginning to co opt the word critical thinking, mm -hmm. but when they mean what they mean when they say critical thinking is, uh, they mean critical consciousness, which is actually in reality, critical believing. It's, it's accepting a set of prim, uh, 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 um, a set of suppositions and then requiring that, um, uh, any beliefs around these issues conform to the beliefs that make up, uh, uh, critical, uh, consciousness. Hmm. So, yeah. I was just going to ask because, uh, what you can do is to, you know, go back to one founder of the Western tradition, Jesus, who said, judge the tree by its fruits and mm -hmm. study how this, these suppositions, this core of suppositions leads people to think, behave and feel in the world and then analyze that. And you can come up and say, well, okay. So there's once upon a time, there's this place called Evergreen state college. They completely, um, mm -hmm. wholeheartedly, uh, put all of their, all their eggs in the critical social yeah. justice basket. And then here's the outcome of that. Um, and then you can, you can go through and you can, you can interview people who go through, like they, they become very social justice-y and then they, then something leads them out of it. And then that you can see, okay, well, this is how I felt. And now I feel differently. And so, but what you're just, I just want to bring out one thing. Maybe it's not so much the ideas themselves, or maybe the ideas themselves, those suppositions themselves lead people to behave in ways that I've found in my research 
dehumanizing, demoralizing, and ultimately nihilistic. Um, ultimately, just seeing only the dark side of the world and being very mm -hmm. kind of narrow in that. Um, but maybe it's also something to do with the fact that these ideas, it's not just these ideas, but it's also what is demanded of you once you engage with these ideas, that it's just the process of narrowing yourself in and of itself that starts to cause more and more agitation as you go along life with any given set of propositions that you can't question or that aren't leading to, um, or, or that are constantly shutting you down or constantly making you spiral back on themselves. Any set of suppositions will have that outcome of some sort of weight or just a feeling of nastiness. Maybe people use the word toxicity. Um, and mm -hmm. so that's got a political uh, tone to it. But, you know, just like I, I see people who accept ideas and get really fundamentalist. Yeah. And, and they, they tend to, I mean, within their bubble, I think that there's a range of like behavior and good and bad things, but like when they butt up against reality, like there's always this kind of reaction or that they're very tied to their group because they're, those ideas don't exist outside of that social reinforcement of the ideas. Well, I, I have some ideas about that, Benjamin. I'd be really interested, um, in, uh, David's take on this, uh, because I, I think David and I share an interest in psychoanalytic and Freudian thinking, but it, it goes something like this. The process of having you know, the behaviors become narrower and narrower, and they have this element of toxicity to them. Uh, I have begun to wonder if that toxicity and the viciousness that's associated with critical social justice is both internally and externally reinforced, which is to say, it, by doing these things, you get something that you want. And I think uh, hmm. Freud's premise in his structural theories was that there is a significant part of each of us uh, as human beings that 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 it, that does have a, a destructive, uh, uh, vicious element to it. And he called it the id, but that this destructive uh, element stays with us during our entire lives and some of us learn to manage it uh, in healthy ways and some of us don't but there's there's always this 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 need to express or discharge this negative or aggressive energy is something that that we all learn to cope with in day-to-day -day, uh, uh, practice and, and one of the things that tends to keep us in check with with these, with this negative energy is that our societal norms, um, you know, protect us and others against the discharge of these more violent, destructive impulses. And so we have to find other ways, socially acceptable ways to discharge them. I think what critical social justice has done is it's the underlying message has been to say, it's okay to treat other people in dehumanizing ways. It's okay to take people's jobs away from them. It's it's okay, in other words, to hurt other people if the people that you are hurting are oppressive. And not only does that provide a vehicle for the discharge of this sort of libidinal energy that has a hmm. uh, th that is is partly destructive, um, but also you get social status by doing that. So hence 
you are internally reinforced because it feels good to discharge that energy, to use your power uh, to put someone else down or to take something away from them, to have that kind of vicious control over them. And so it's internally reinforcing, but it's externally reinforcing because your your uh, uh, by society uh, will um, uh, uh, will will reward you for standing up for victims or or because you've claimed status as a victim and that you're so brave by uh, hurting this other person because uh, mm-hmm. a, a racist or an unfair society demands that they be hurt is kind of a corrective action. So I, I wonder if mm. like the viciousness and the awfulness that you're alluding to, Benjamin, um, in some ways is explained by the fact that critical social justice is the perfect ideology to allow people to act in a socially acceptable ways on the on their very basest <laughs> impulses. So much to unpack, and yeah, I fully agree. I fully agree. Um, I think we have plenty of evidence for at least three main areas. Psychology, absolutely. Neurology, I would say. Hmm. And probably even philosophy. So let, let me start with the neurology part. Um, neurology or psychology. So whenever we talked about emotion, thoughts, and actions, so the cognitive, the emotional, and the behavioral aspects, we, we tend to think of certain neural underpinnings. Not to say that those neural underpinnings cause any of that, but there is a you know there's a parallel between what the brain processes and the way we experience life, and it's not surprising that what Dr. Kinsvar just said about the prevalence of the id, this, for lack of a better term, this evil element within us, is projecting itself outside and inside, sometimes unbeknown to the person proclaiming DEI. Sometime more according to a willful, you know, deceitful element. And that's why we should probably talk about the dark triad. I will mm. do this later. Mm. But uh, I want to give an example. Uh, for, for individuals that suffer um, a variety of emotional and cognitive problems, maybe cluster B personality traits, borderline, people that unfortunately start to cut and physically harm themselves. Hmm. It would be a misnomer to say that they do that because they are irrational about what they're doing. Hmm. Of course, they know that cutting themselves is harmful. So it's not a question of being irrational, it's pre-rational. It's before any type of rationality kicks in. And neurologically speaking, the act of cutting oneself overrides the effort neurons, the, 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 the nociceptic factors, the the pain perception in the brain so that the physical pain covers up the emotional pain. Mm-hmm. So it still hurts, but it's a substitute, a cognitive substitution of pain. So I'd much rather feel physical pain rather than an emotional one because it takes so much more effort and, and, and balance to deal with it. So let's talk about balance. A lot of this originates from, from, you could say from critical theory, from the Frankfurt School for folks like, you know, the postmodernists, Derrida and all those, in an attempt to demolish the status quo. And this in itself quite problematic because it's easier to destroy something that someone else built. 
<laughs> it's not rebuilding, it's just destroying. If, mm. And this is not just me reinterpreting things. It's called deconstruction or deconstructivism. It's in the real word of the philosophers that D'Angelo's other quote. And that's why I said we should be like children. Children take apart things that they play with Legos, they take apart to reassemble them and create something beautiful. The purpose of you know critical believing is really just to destroy things, but not really replace them with anything that's nurturing. And how else can we define that but evil? Now, I always like to talk about words, and I conclude, evil comes from the German übel, which really means nauseated, physically painful, hmm. erratic to vomit. And so it's not surprising to me, at least, that whether you take on a psychoanalytic perspective or a neuroscientific one, this sense of impending doom, this nausea, this uh, feeling that you're rotting inside, you project outside to the society that is rotting, but you fail to understand that you are just one of the elements. And this is how I conclude. It will be not a problem if we were acknowledging the fact that we are all rotten being to some extent. We're all fallible as human beings so that we can improve. You know, it's the same thing as we are all sinners to some extent. Well, you know, we can all make a mistake, let's improve. The issue is that certain class of people are the evil ones. And if this is not racism, you tell me what that is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this just is this this set of behaviors is not just within what we call critical social justice ideology. It's within a lot of different kinds of activisms. In mm -hmm. my research, my firsthand lived experience of it, a lot of group <laughs> dynamics can get infected by this way of thinking, scapegoating, uh, saying, mm -hmm. okay, recognize, okay, we finally found the evil in our midst, and we're going to um, give ourselves mm -hmm. over to the democratic impulse of disgust. Mm -hmm. And we're going to draw our boundaries, and then we're going to cast that individual out, Anybody who's defending that individual, anybody who's who's questioning our democratic impulse of disgust is also a tied to also tied up in that. It's that externalization of what you called evil or that externalization of the power, not just an external, like the, a concentration, like, like with, with the cutting. And I don't know if we're supposed to be, if I'm allowed to talk about that on YouTube, we're going to have to see if this, what happens in this video, but being able to concretize that ambiguous threat into a one specific thing like either either it's a some sort of blade going through your skin or it's like this one person who did this one violent act or 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 signaled through their expression that they are a part of this problem then we can we can put it all on them and there there's this huge blind spot there's this feeling of relief you know like the whole scapegoat mm -hmm. thing it's an ancient process but there's problems with that because there's this huge blind spot. You know, there's this orgiastic climax of disgust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's this like this nice like mm -hmm. uh, release period. But like, but there's also mm -hmm. like, well, what about your own bad thoughts? Like if we're going to mm -hmm. start to say, okay, this person has bad thoughts. So we get to ridicule him. What about your own bad thoughts? Well, I don't have any bad thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not true. And mm -hmm. then you start to, there's cracks. 
I think the more you do that, more you you don't analyze your own behavior or you don't identify with the scapegoat goat or saying, I, I you know, there's part of me that is that, that does have bad thoughts. There's part of me that does have impulses um, that I do control because I because I see the, the wages of those impulses or the, the outcomes of giving over myself to those impulses. Is, it's not good for me. It's not good for anybody. So I'm going to mm-hmm. keep them to myself or I'm going to work on them. But I still have them so I can still have sympathy with that person. Person who's taken, who's somehow become like the embodiment of all those things. And when people, one more thing, when people imbo- allow themselves to embody evil in another human being, like they, they completely destroy that human being mm-hmm. um, in the sense that they don't see that human being's good side. They don't see that human being's aspirations. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe their, their faults are tied to evil rather than some sort of process of stuck development. Like there's this lack of sympathy. Mm. There's this lack of being able to actually help that person and to bring them back into the fold, you know, because I mean, you've cut off that whole redemption arc, right? And, and in the critical social justice ideology, we have that in a super, in a very refined superstructure that possesses institutions. But this, this is based on ancient tribal dynamics This is based on ancient, Social, I'm sure, like ancient areas in the brain, I would love to hear you guys' thoughts on this, and ancient ways that we've tied together and, and figured out how to be a social creature. Like these, mm-hmm. these are aspects of, of, these are the dark aspects of being social creatures, perhaps. I, I mean, know. that's a, such an elegant uh, description of, of my understanding of, of authors uh, like Jonathan Haidt in, in his book, The Righteous Mind, uh, describes some of what you're you're discussing there benjamin and 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 there 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 is this uh uh there is there are needs for for both to belong to a group and to uh for for purity within the group that uh that underlies some of the processes that you're just so eloquently describing there Hmm. purity yeah purity yeah yeah, I've been thinking that's another thing. I, I, I haven't done anything with that yet, but what purity wash your clothes and you have somebody else do that too. Yeah. What's that? How do you get pure? Through fire, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but, but yeah, no, that's, that's it. Like, I, I think purity is, it, the, I, I hope Jonathan uh, will write more about that at some point or would be, interested in other authors ideas about um the uh, uh what, what they feel that the moral um the moral intuition towards a need for purity how that might play into what we're seeing in in the critical social justice element because you know you, you mentioned so much in what you're discussing there benjamin discussed and discussed mm-hmm. i think is what someone um experiences in when when they're confronted with a lack of purity Mm. Yeah. So I think those two things go together in very interesting ways. And I know Jonathan Haidt has written about this in a way that I'm not familiar enough with his work to intelligently uh, paraphrase, but he, Mm. he has uh, talked in, in some very complicated and intelligent ways about, um, uh, about some of the thoughts that you're bringing up here. I'd like to add something to this. Um, in regards to feeling nauseated and disgusted, well, the, the research is pretty clear. You know, the, all, all the things you, that you both mentioned are are correct. Uh, as in, 
it's hard to unpack all the layers between physical sickness and disgust and the emotional mm. and cognitive result of that because they're they are one and the same. But I, it's always surprising to me how much the opposite, I don't know, words such as hate, hateful speech, for instance, throw out all the time. And in my experience, both as a clinician, as an instructor, the most dangerous thing is not so much hate, but a misplaced love, a perverse love. Hmm. I want to give you this an example. Like, if we're talking about diversity and inclusion, who, who would like to be labeled as non-inclusive, not loving, or racist? Nobody likes that. Um, and I do not believe that they don't like that because they're trying to cover up the real evil, uh, because it's not likable to be racist, evil, and non-inclusive. It's, it's, it's one of the primordial needs that it you know, relate to what Benjamin said about this tribal limbic area of our brain. But what do I mean by misplaced or perverse love? I mean that it's a type of love that by definition is perverse in a sense that demands you something that you can never give. First of all, as we mentioned before, it's vague. It's like mm -hmm. one of the markers of uh, mm -hmm. abusive relationship. If you mm -hmm. only did this, then I will consider love you more. Okay, tell me what it is and I'll do it. Yeah, you don't quite get it, but you never know what it <laughs> yeah, is, so, hmm. so right. which is yeah. through and through. Um, and the other thing is, it's not so much that you care about the people you claim to care for. You just despise the other outside group that, in your estimation, is the culprit for everything that's wrong. So let's assume that this is, let's assume for, for the sake of a conversation, that it has nothing to do with, I don't know, race, ideology, gender, or sex. Let's talk about size, okay? So the evil ones is the dominant group, okay? Because mm -hmm. the dominant group is the group whose people dominate a certain culture, okay? Well, this makes two assumptions. The first one is that size matters more than the topic or the content. Just because you have more people belonging to something than themselves, they're the dominant in a way that it's negative, okay? Well, it just so happens that all physicians, the dominant group within physicians, need to have an MD or a DO. Like it or not, this is a requirement. It's nothing to do with the patriarchy or um, racism. You need to have a degree to practice medicine. But simultaneously, the few are also blamed. So what, what do we mean by dominant group? So you could have a dominant group whereby a portion of the population in a given country speaks a certain language and has a certain ethno-cultural background, okay? And then you have minorities that come from different backgrounds. And so in social justice ideologies, these are the group that controls the rest in an intrinsically negative way. In the case of the US, maybe you could say, I don't know, Anglo-Saxon white male group is a dominant group. But simultaneously, if the role were reversed, and I'm thinking about Europe, where only few people control the power, think about monarchies, that, that falls apart because it's no longer the dominant group in terms of size, it's just a few. There are few monarchs and the rest are just peasants. So now the peasants are the right one and the monarchs are the wrong one. Now, this is simply to show that if we don't target the topic itself, we will follow the logical fallacy. 
the moment you start to blame something that is unnamed, that doesn't have a face, and you call it patriarchy, mild supremacy, whatever you want to call it, that you fail mm. to see the fact that those very traits are existing inside of you. Yeah. Mm. But just to kind of put nuance on that, when we're talking about psychological terms, um, like with emotional distress, um, dealing with something like diffuse as, as depression or just problems with, um, you know, not even just positive self-regard, but like in the case of, I don't know if this is the right term, borderline personality, where you don't even know who you are, like a lack of self. Like, in, it seems like in the case of psychotherapy or that broad work of counseling that there is the need to sit with that vagueness and there is a need to, to like actually kind of enter into the, isn't, don't you want to enter into the vagueness? Like when, when you're not trying to control people or, or kind of like use it to manipulate people, vagueness or being comfortable with vagueness can be beneficial where you explore. I, I know I'm kind of using that term, but I was just thinking since I'm in, in, the couch on the couch with you two, like, <laughs> you know, like vagueness isn't something that you necessarily try to avoid in, in counseling and psychotherapy, right? Um, do, do you want me to answer or I, I give you my you. perspective and then Dr. Kinsvater can add something to it. Well, one way to answer this question is, well, there are two different strategies at the very least two. One would be the psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, and the other one will be more the cognitive, the behavioral school of thought. In the first case, yeah, you should let the person talk and and just see, you know, by virtue of, for instance, word association, what comes to be. And, and the same is true for, uh, I don't know, our therapy, for instance, where you just sit and, and see what unfolds in front of you. you. You could make the argument that cognitive behavioral therapy, due to its behavioristic background, it's more focused on untangling all the mistakes and cognitive processes that the person experiences. So your role is more active, so to speak, to help the person take those things apart. But in both cases, it's not vagueness. It's, it's a question of timing. So you mm -hmm. allow the person to speak freely. You don't, you don't project your system of belief contrary to what social justice theory and critical belief does, which you project what is right you just take a step back and you let the person unfold. But at the same time, the way you formulate the questions is intrinsical to the proper therapeutic setting, which is not too different from what we do in the Socratic method. You, and that's why earlier I said we need to be like children. Children ask why all the time. So by virtue of asking why, the child wants to unpack the world. Yes, it is a deconstruction. It is a criticism. It is critical theory in a sense because it takes things apart, but to see what happens afterwards. So for instance, a per person comes to me with a statement that's very vague and yet negative. Everybody hates me, okay? I'm not gonna say, no, this is wrong. Okay. I say, okay, tell me more about it. What is your evidence? For this statement, which will be the, the cognitive behavioral therapy take on it, or give me some examples, and we can work on again, either our therapy or or some you know word juxtaposition, and see what patterns we notice there. All right, so it, it's not an either or. Now, if your question is not so much about borderline or cluster B traits, but we more like what about psychosis or schizophrenia? How long do I have to wait before? telling the person that what they're expressing, it's not rational. Well, that's an entirely different set of intervention. However, 
even in that case, we often confuse the fact that saying the truth is in itself negative, which I think is the byproduct of all these theories, whereby anything that's remotely universal and absolute is considered to be repressive, oppressive, and controlling. Truth is truth. Truth should liberate you. However, the person might not be ready to hear it right away. And you don't even need to be a psychotherapist. Think about if you ever had a friend that is in the process of recovering from a breakup. The truth might be, well, you know, the two of you are not good together. She's not good for you. You're not good for her. But the person might not be ready, emotionally, cognitive to understand that. So you're there to, in this sense, really maintain a safe space. This is the proper usage of the term safe space, not what critical belief wants us to. Mm, Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interim, like just specifically with that safe space. It's an interim place where you, somebody can relax and go through that process through time of yeah. dealing with pain or healing or whatever. It's not just like we're going to lock you into a padded cell so you never have to experience. It's, you know, it's purgatory, my man. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I think that I, I I agree with everything that David said, and uh, I do think I think vagueness uh, when when someone is being vague, and it and it's not because they've been deprived of the developmental process of developing a sense of self because of early life trauma. Uh, that that oftentimes the behaviors that you see in the person in front of you serve a purpose. And so to be vague, a person is often either um, uh, they're, they're experiencing the world as vague or having trouble getting in touch with the truth because that either gets them something that they want or helps them to avoid something that they dread. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I see I see the adoption of vagueness um it, you know, I, I've seen both of that; those happen a lot, and I, I think it. Uh, I think that idea essentially it either is the same idea that you're talking about there, Benjamin and and David, with a safe space, or it closely parallels it. That 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 being vague helps somebody uh, uh, feel feel better, uh, even though it's it's not really a way of life. It's hmm. it's a way of, of finding comfort and safety. Hmm. So this is a good, this might be a good way to kind of like start to wrap things up because we we're supposed to be talking to college students or in the context of some sort of like somebody like dealing with institutional DEI. Yeah. Maybe they don't feel like mm -hmm. they're in a safe space. Maybe, maybe they're overwhelmed by this. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really interesting just like kind of getting meta about our conversation. Like we started there, but like the way that our minds like work, like by associating and exploring it's kind of, we're, we're practicing, I, I feel like we're practicing while we're preaching. Like, we're going to go over here, we're going to look at things, we're going to test things, we're going to, you know, challenge each other in different ways, we're going to move through the conversation. It's not going to be about DEI, or, you know, like, we're gonna, not going to solve racism today, you know, like, we don't have really big grand plans, but, you know, and we're not even going to give, like, the definitive tool set to defeat this or to survive this, but, like, we're going to open it up and we're going to engage with these in a way that, is exhibiting the characteristics that are probably either like adaptive and a positive, like positively mm -hmm. adaptive in life mm -hmm. and or positively adaptive in the situation that we started as our premise, which is a student or an employee 
being confronted with this way of thinking that has a rigidity to it, that has a moralistic aspect to it, and that does seem to end up in the hands or being wielded by people who could be considered manipulative. Mm-hmm. ideological. Maybe you can use bigger words like narcissist or something like that, but those are kind of technical terms. So I'm, I think predator is an appropriate term. Predatory. Ideological. I think there's, I definitely think that uh, uh, like, people, like energy vampire, is that what you're talking about? Oh, I think, I, I think that many of the people who push this are gratifying themselves by doing that. Otherwise, I mean, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. possible motive could you have for not trying to describe these things as a trade-off unless you were deeply personally invested in people um believing exactly as you do and uh that that strikes me primarily as a process of gratification and uh i I do think that a lot of people are are uh, gratifying themselves at the expense of impressionable aged college students and increasingly they're gratifying themselves at the expense of K through 12 uh, kids. Um, that That's the only explanation I can think of of why someone wouldn't have a broader and nuanced mm-hmm. conversation about this. But if I were to, if for, for any of David's students or other college students who are listening who would like to um, just have something very concrete to tie on to, I would say this, that your most important job if you find yourselves in these situations is A, you know, maybe maybe just realize that because these people are gratifying themselves at your expense and the expense of people around you, you're highly unlikely um, to to change what what they are doing uh, there. And I think many probably complete themselves with these theories, uh, uh, the, the book True Believer it explains how people who feel that something is missing within them will latch on to these theories. And so when you begin to question it, uh, they'll, they'll come out and say, uh, to question my theory is to question me as a person. And I think that's, mm-hmm. in some ways, I think that's been a very deliberate strategy on on the part of the critical social justice advocates to make it not okay to question. But I also think for a lot of critical social advocates, that's true. Uh, so, but but I I think the other thing you can do, other than realizing that there you there's just a lot of people that you're not going to be able to change is to reduce your sense of confusion and unbalance because everything that the critical social justice types do is designed to put you in a state of psychological vulnerability so as to make uh so as to make you more uh vulnerable to uh engaging in ideological compliance and so the way that you can make yourself less confused and less unbalanced is to recognize uh what some of the tactics that they use are because you can never Mm -hmm. quite nail them down in conversation and one of the tactics that i have seen is advancing and retreating definitions of important terms and this is sort of like i mean this is essentially the mott and bailey but i think of it as it as advancing and retreating because it's clearer for me but for a critical social justice type when they are in a situation where they have the upper hand uh 
they will uh, provide definitions and policy suggestions that um, you know are highly implausible. So you, you hear, mm. oh, if if they are in circumstances where they are not likely uh, to be challenged on on what it is they're saying. So so you know, someone with a PhD standing up in front of uh, freshmen might say. Or even graduate students. Hell, this used to happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, someone would come in, very charismatic person with a PhD, and say, uh, uh, "All white people are racist, and there's such a thing as multiracial whiteness." And the way that you're not that is you engage in ideological compliance, and then you just accept that you're racist, but you also believe what we want you to believe. Um, that's the advancing definition. The retreating definition is when someone challenges them on this, and then they change the definition to one that cannot be challenged and that's perfectly reasonable. So, uh, so you, so you know, maybe maybe a, someone is telling fifth graders or a group of graduate students or whatever, all white people are racist, and some people of color are should be considered uh, multi multi-racial whites or something. Um, but then when they're challenged on that, they'll say something like, well, we just really believe that um, we need to confront racism where it exists because every human being deserves dignity. And so if, mm-hmm. if you are in a situation where you're around these social justice types and you're subjected uh, to different definitions based on the context, it can be very confusing. But if you understand that when you are around ideological predators, that they're one of the things that they're going to use is advancing and retreating definitions, then, you know, it helps just to recognize it when it's happening and it'll give you a sense of agency and empowerment. And maybe you can think uh, privately, maybe bring up as, as uh, situations allow, concepts like trade-offs. So that's one really kind of the the analogy. I was giving a speech or a talk or whatever about this um, the other the other week, and it happened to be a week where I took my cat to the vet. And uh, for anyone who's watching who has cats, I think that they'll know that this is true. Uh, As a result of taking my cat to the vet, the vet told me that I had to give my cat a pill. And I said, please don't make me do this. My cat still has the claws. He's wily. He's very aggressive. And I'm going to get cut and beat up if I try to give my cat this pill because I have to hold him down and get him to swallow it. And I can't do it. And the vet sold me these things called pill pockets, which are they're they're essentially like cat candy that you can put the pill in the middle of, and then the cat will eat it. And of course, what my cat did was eat the candy and spit the pill out. But but apparently, a lot of cats will do this anyway. Critical social justice types understand the concept of the pill pocket, and so they'll take. Um, They'll take ideas like all white people are racist until they accept, you know, the principles of, you know, socialism or or whatever. Uh, You can't be 
if 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 you believe in the liberal concept of capitalism then you can't also consider yourself to be an anti-racist they'll take those pills that an ordinary person would say what are you nuts that's a crazy idea i don't believe that i'm going to resist that idea they put it in a pill pocket uh and then it comes across as something like um no human beings we need to have an honest conversation about the impact of race in our country and then it becomes much more palatable and the ordinary person is is asked to you know swallow it without too much problems but a, a lot of the persons like david's students are saying hey I think there's something in this in this in this thing that I'm being asked to swallow that isn't as palatable. So I think understanding that people are being force fed in a a pill that is wrapped up in a bunch of nice sounding terms like DEI and anti-racism. That's another important thing to understand when you're in the middle of this. And I think what that allows you to do is it allows you to see how incredibly desperate DEI types are, both to have their, uh, both in their need for you to believe what they believe, and their intense fear that someone will discover the fragility of Mm -hmm. the arguments that they are making, and then... uh, reject those arguments, which for someone who completes themselves, their sense of self with these ideas, someone who's made the political personal, it's a devastating thing to consider that my ideas are flawed and other people don't like them. So those are some maybe more, less esoteric, more concrete steps. They, those were important steps for me to take and, and to understand this. And I, I, I think that those could be useful steps for other people. May I just one more thing? I want to be mindful of the time. Um, I, I just realized that throughout a few terms, but I never defined them. Um, so I, I agree with everything that Dr. Kinsparer just said. But when earlier I said the students need to be aware of how to recognize these cognitive, these emotional patterns, I mentioned that dark triad. Uh, and, and there's really not much time really to go in depth, but the dark triad is it's one of the m- most common psychological framework, you know, Machiavellianism, and especially Machiavellianism, I would say, but yeah. also psychopathy, narcissism, that yeah. play a role in the way they, they behave. And I would also like to add sadism. Yeah. That's usually called the dark tetra because there are four instead of three. And yeah. this will take a long time, so we cannot go into the depth of each definition. Um, we but, should, do, know, we, we should we, do a subsequent thing on that, David, because it's so important. Yeah. Yes. But so, so I mean, uh, I never advise any students to go online and self-diagnose. So careful if you just Google the dark triad or the dark tetrad. Don't do this at home. But at the same time, <laughs> one, once you once you have a clear understanding of what each of these terms is, then it's easier to recognize in the words of whatever the educator, the administrator, the politician trying to convince you of the validity of this misplaced claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I want to stress the fact that th- this is connected to a previous conversation that Benjamin and I had about, I think it was um, humanism and transhumanism, especially Machiavellianism, 
comes from the same background. So Machiavellians come from Niccolò Machiavelli and the you know it- Italian Renaissance or pre-Renaissance. And the idea is that you util- utilize the person in front of you to achieve a goal, not necessarily a positive or negative. It's different than narcissism. It's seeing whatever happens, if the person is successful, you're not happy for the person. You see how can you use that to your advantage. Let's say a person gets a promotion and you see how you can use that to advance, I don't know, a proposal you have for your business, for instance, right? If it's negative, same thing. So that it's almost a, a removal of, of a, a goal. And that's one of the issues with these type of theories, these type of ideology, that they themselves are confused about what the goal is. So they keep switching and those four elements, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and sadism, really play a role, and it's in front of everybody's eyes. You don't need to be a psychologist to notice them. Mm-hmm. 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 Hmm. We should do a dark tetrad show. That'd be great. Yeah, so, that's brilliant. It's always fun to look at the dark side. <laughs> yeah. But um, I hope that this was useful to your audience, which are students and my audience, which are, I guess, just laymen. Um, but it's always great to have you guys on. I do need to uh, tell you that me and Jeff did solve that Gloomhaven dungeon, <laughs> but every, oh. everybody died except for me. Like all the characters no, ended up dying. I wasn't there. So we That's finally got it. That's <laughs> Machiavellianism. Right there. And it, that, you know, that, that, that's how we get our dark side out is we play gloom, gloom, gloom <laughs> and beat up, beat up thieves and monsters. <laughs> oh, gentlemen, this was great. Thank you. This was great. Much. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate that. And uh, my students will really appreciate that. So yeah. it's because it's the end of the semester. And so th- thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure.